Our guest speaker tonight is, is an author. Uh, I have had the privilege of reading four of his books, uh, and I probably just let him down. He probably thought I'd read more. Uh, I should have asked Dr. Dan to come up and invite him. Uh, but he has uh, shared with me three books that he highly recommends for home and uh, that he wanted me to share with you. One of them is Love or Die, Christ's Wake-Up Call to the Church. And uh, yes, it's to the church. It's talking about um, Revelation 2, 4, and, and walking in that first love and earnestly wanting to walk with God uh, individually, personally, in a, in a profound way. And, and so we highly recommend that uh, to be a part of a family devotion or personal devotion. Uh, the second one, if you bite and devour one another. Now, uh, especially if you're married, uh, you can have conflict, but all guys, I can guarantee that every single one of us in here has experienced personal conflict with somebody else, right? Who hasn't had personal conflict with somebody else? I know Joseph Sorensen's going to raise his hand. No, I know he doesn't. <laughs> but it's biblical principles on how to handle conflict, and it's wonderful teaching to be able to show us and give us those tools to be able to work through those things biblically uh, like we all need to do all the time. And uh, the third one is leading with love. Uh, we as a church staff, we have gone through this together uh, with the workbook, and uh, it, it, it surrounds uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and, uh, you know, and the fact that it was written to a church uh, as well as individuals is important in learning how to live with, with love and leading with love. So three great books, and he has a ton more out there. And so if the Lord would lay it on your heart as you look through them, uh, you know, just ask him a question about it. Uh, Brother Alex, it is a joy to have you here this weekend. It's a special time. We have been very intentional here at RMC and earnestly wanting to minister to our men. And we want to get them to this point, to where we understand that God has provided a tremendous victory. And most of us know that up here, but sometimes we struggle in walking in that. And we are just excited that you are here and what the Lord has laid on your heart to be able to help guide us through the scripture and understanding what it means to have a plan to walk in God's victory. Brother, come on up and share what the Lord has land, laid on your heart. Please give a warm welcome to Alexander Strzok. <laughs> Thanks for all those lies you said. No, no, it's the truth. Are you ready? You know, it's a great privilege to be your teacher for this weekend, and it's an honor to be with you, and I just pray that we'll have a great time together. Now, I want you to know that Brother Rick didn't give me a choice what to speak about. He says, this is what you're going to speak about. And so I want you to take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Rick, I'm glad you gave me this passage because it made me do all new work. This is not leftovers or warmed overs, okay? All right, I don't want you angry. I don't want to bite and devour one another. 
The theme of this conference is planning for victory, be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, let's just take one second here for you brothers just to bow your heads and ask the Lord to help you as we look at one of the most magisterial passages in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our future resurrection from the dead and the glorious future that is ours. Just take a moment that we can hear this evening, that we don't get angry at maybe some of this things said as we are challenged. Roman numeral one in your outline, the victory, the resurrection from the dead. Our our passage is verse 50 to 57. I tell you a mystery, we shall all be changed. Now, just before we look at our immediate context to our passage, let me just give you a mini review of the development of this argument. It's amazing how much space Paul takes uh, in, in the book of Corinthians on the resurrection. It's a very large chapter. And the detailed argument that he lays out, it's very, very detailed. Well, you might wonder why. Because the resurrection from the dead is a rock-bottom uh, foundational truth of the whole faith. And they are denying this. It's, it's a core belief. And as you'll see here, it's a magnificent, it's breathtaking when we go through this chapter. Now, Paul begins the chapter in verses 1 to 3 with telling us the gospel, the gospel I preach to you. And listen to what it is. Verse 3 and 4 is probably the classic example of the simpleized gospel that you can use anytime you're, you're witnessing. I always like to use my hands. Christ, most wonderful person who ever lived, died, his mission, what he came for, for theological reason, our sins. Sin's our problem, by the way. That's the problem in the world. And then, according to the Scriptures, he buried and rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures. That's a beautiful description of the gospel in the simplest way. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul didn't make it up. He was buried, and he rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Now, not only that, he goes on to say, all the apostles saw the post-resurrected Christ, and over 500 witnesses saw him. Now, you Corinthians believe that. That's what you accepted. That's what you're standing in. But some of the Corinthians are saying there is no resurrection of the dead, despite the fact that they had believed the gospel proclamation of Christ risen from the dead. Verse 12. So Paul demonstrates in verse 16 the logical consequences if we deny resurrection from the dead. Well, first of all, there is no gospel because if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ did not rise from the dead. Paul's gospel is in vain. In fact, he's a liar. He's a false witness. He's actually a fool. It's actual madness what he has experienced. And uh, your faith is in vain. The whole system falls upon this point. 
And then he tells us in verses 21 and 22 that um, Christ is our new representative man, not Adam any longer. Christ's victory over sin and death is our victory. We have a new representative man. We're not in Adam. Once you're born again, you're done with Adam, and you're in Christ. He's your representative man before God. What is true of Christ is true of you. You're safe and secure in Christ. Now, Christ defeated the last enemy. And what is that enemy? Death. Now, if, Christ, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then death has not been defeated. James Garland says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then death remains unconquered and still holds sway beyond the end of time as a power set over against God. No, Christ defeated death through his resurrection. It's our great hope, especially when you're ready to die. Now, the problem they struggled with was this. How can this weak, earthly body be raised from the dead and go to heaven? But a human corpse is not what will be resurrected at the final resurrection. You see, and this is going to be a theme of our weekend, they got deceived by bad influence and bad people who Paul says in verse 33 and 34, did not know God. And Greek philosophy denied even the reality of the body because they're Greeks and they love Plato. And Platonism diminishes the material world and exalts the forms and the ideas. Someone has said there's Plato and everything else is a footnote. So this is their culture. This is the air they breathe in. This is the society they live in. It's platonic. They're not interested in the body. And so it wasn't long uh, before they're going, how can a corpse be raised? It's dead. And it doesn't sound very kosher to us. And it's really not acceptable in our society. Now, this brings us to our breathtaking passage and this is the background to the verses we're going to emphasize, verses 50 uh, uh, to 58. Now, it's on the screen, but you may not be able to see it because it's little, unless maybe you have x-ray eyes or something. But it's going to be on the screen, but maybe you want to look at it in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV, and I'm going to read it very slowly. Are you with me? Okay, don't leave me now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, that's our earthly bodies, everything that's earthly and temporal, imperfect, earthly, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which will be the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, nor does the perishable, that's what you have now, a perishable body, don't step in front of a truck, inherit the imperishable, truck can go right through it. Behold, I tell you a mystery. It's one of the many mysteries that Paul has. This is a marvelous mystery. Now, mystery means something hidden in the past, now revealed that all who believe can understand. It's not a mystery like in a novel. We shall not all die or we shall not all sleep, but 
We shall all be changed. Now, the key word is change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, how quickly can you blink your eye? At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Just, just for a moment, you better let that sink in. Don't, don't, let the, don't run over these words. The dead will be raised imperishable. But don't forget what he said earlier. We shall not all die. Some of us are actually going to be transformed in a moment. And the key term here, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's the key term. We shall be changed. Here's the exchange For this perishable body, the body you have now, must put on an imperishable body. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable, that's our earthly, present, temporal, imperfect body, puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Oh, this is powerful. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's been conquered by Christ. Resurrection. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, one illustration Paul gives, because this... May, we're, we're so used to this, it may not be a problem. But in their culture, and remember that because we're going to apply all this to our culture and the deceptions we're under. In their culture, this was a heavy pill to follow because they're thinking in terms of a corpse being revived, and that's not possible. If you've ever seen a dead person, I have actually experienced two experiences with family members, one family member, seven days dead, and I remember holding my mother-in-law so she wouldn't pass out. She wanted to see her d- dead daughter seven days later, and I had to hold her tight. You, you see a dead body after seven days. It's pretty horrifying. The body begins immediately to rot and turn colors and stink. And then my own brother, we found him dead after several days. It's very unpleasant. But here's what Paul is saying. We're not reviving a corpse. You're going to be changed. You're going to be changed in a moment, twinkling of an eye. Something brand new is coming, like Christ. So here's an illustration he gives, a beautiful illustration. If you ever do a funeral, use this one. Here's a seed. It's a real simple illustration to show the problem. Here's a seed. Now, you take the seed and you put it in the ground. What comes up out of the ground? A seed? No, of course not. You put it in this ground and it dies. It actually rots, breaks open, soil, minerals, the water all mixed together, and out comes a beautiful golden stalk of wheat. And you can look at a whole field, stalks of wheat. Gorgeous. You see, what went in the ground is not what came out of the ground. What came out is something glorious. And so Paul's point is, don't get all confused about earthly entities and heavenly entities. They're not comparable. They're not comparable. God will raise you and change you and give you an imperishable body fitted for the new city and the new Jerusalem. Now, what should be our response to this? Well, the response is in verse 57, Roman numerals number two in your outline right in front of you. First, victory. Second, praise. 
for the victory won through Christ's resurrection. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He turns from very detailed arguments because he's very serious about this. It's fundamental to our faith and everything about us. We're either total madmen talking about the resurrection of the dead or this is one of the most glorious truths ever conceived. So he moves from arguments to praise and thanksgiving to God. It's the only logical conclusion when you have the hope that, yes, you will die unless the Lord comes. And if he comes, no problem. You just get changed in a moment. Be like Christ. Fitted for eternity. So what, what's, the, what's the conclusion? There's only one conclusion. Worship him. Give thanks to him. Praise him just like we were doing. No wonder the angels in heaven spend so much time praising the Lord. They understand the full plan and program of God. Paul is thankful to God because it's God's victory. Notice it says, God who gives us. That's a present tense. God who gives us. Right now, he gives us this tremendous victory, this tremendous hope. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. There are many troubles in this world. And if the Lord doesn't come and you, don't, you are not alive at the time of his coming and you'll be transformed in, his, in a blink of an eye, you will face that last great battle and that last great bleak, dark, uh, dark enemy death. It is not pleasant. It's not meant to be pleasant. As Christians, we can face it with courage that others cannot. But it's still no pleasant thing. It's totally abnormal. It's the result of the fall and sin. It's pretty disgusting. But God has given us the victory. We're going to heaven. We're going to get a new body. It's not going to be like this broken down body subject to disease and sickness and all kinds of sins and problems. It's going to be a new body. Imperishable. Fitted for eternity. What a glorious truth this is. However, we're not resurrected yet. We're not in glory yet. I can see looking at you, you're not in glory yet. In this world, before our resurrection, which is the final consummation of our salvation, our salvation is not complete until we get that body and we are fitted for the eternal life that God has granted to us to be in that wonderful city. Even Abraham looked forward to that city whose builder is not man but God and the new eternal kingdom of God that never ends unlike any other kingdom on this earth. A new heaven and a new earth. That's our future, being with the Lord forever. However, we're not there yet. And so we do face doubts. We face confusion that haunts us. And we are today easily, like the Corinthians, influenced by this world. You see, verse 33 and 34 tells us, Do not be deceived, O Corinthians. You're missing the boat of your own faith. They were brought under the influence of bad people, corrupts bad morals. And those people, he said, they don't know God. And my theme this week will be, as we'll see in Roman numeral 3 right now, the exhortation. He moves from the praise now to exhortation because these Corinthians were in trouble and they caused Paul a lot of trouble. And they were not growing as they should. And they came under the influence of people who started to question, well, how can the resurrection be? That's crazy. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
immovable. Don't get thrown off track. Don't get deceived. Don't let someone disrupt your whole faith. Now, I want you to notice uh, that he begins by saying, he gives a double emphasis to the Corinthians, beloved and brothers. Now, let me remind you of all the churches. Of all the churches, no church created more problems for Paul than the church at Corinth. No church. And most people would have said, good riddance the bad rubbish. I'm not going back there again. But he goes back again and again. And, and it gets even worse after this book of 1 Corinthians. And it looks like they're going to secede from the other churches. And false teachers have completely tricked them. In fact, there's an irony here. This group of Christians were so proud of their knowledge and wisdom. And they were fighting over who's the smartest among us. Started little parties and groups. But they're the ones that got tricked. They're the ones that denied their own fundamental faith in the resurrection. But he says to them, beloved, you cannot work with people if you don't love them. You'll never last. He loves these people. They're his converts. He says, you're my children in the Lord. And then he calls them brothers, and of course, sisters are included in that. They are the family of God. They are the children of God, and he has deep affection for them. His heart is grieved that they are so easily tricked, and now they're, they're dealing with the very essence of the gospel, being deceived. He loves them. He loves them. And that's why he puts up with them. And that's why he writes them. And he goes back to them. And they insult him on one of the, the trips in which he visits them. But he keeps going back. That's Christ-like love. 1 Corinthians 13. It's what we call the more excellent way, which they missed totally. They lacked love. They had a lot of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. They didn't understand that. Now, it's always great to have a Bible illustration. And the Bible actually illustrates every truth that we believe it's illustrated in the Bible. So it's good to get a good Bible illustration. We have a wonderful Bible illustration of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be unmovable. Don't let someone knock you out of the game. Don't let someone take away your victory from you. Be steadfast, immovable, be purposeful. Anyone want to tell me a great example that we should go to? Daniel, give that man a prize. I can think of no better illustration to show this exhortation, steadfast and immovable, and plan for victory. So turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. It will be on the screen here. Yes, there it is. But look at your Bibles. i like you maybe to mark some key things that I point out. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's presence. Notice this next phrase. And to teach them, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And my point will be, that's what the world is trying to do to us. We're still in Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated, notice that key term, 
for three years, not a four-year college education, it's a three-year college education, but highly intensified. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice they're of the tribe of Judah, so this is a kingly group of people. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Nebednego. Now, verse 8 is our key verse, but Daniel resolved, or some of your translations say purposed, I like that, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, I believe Daniel is a marvelous example of be steadfast, unmovable, plan for victory. I want to remind you, Daniel is a teenager. That's almost all agreed upon that because he lived a very long life. Daniel and his three friends had been brought from the land of Israel and been transported to the land of Babylon to be made uh, courtiers for the king. They were moved into the greatest world superpower at that time, a very advanced civilization. And the story here is a story of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon doing everything they can to reprogram the people of God. Did you know that's happening to us today? There's people trying to reprogram us. And they use classic brainwashing techniques to reprogram these four young men. Let me look at seven points here very quickly. Number one, they changed their address, their country, their custom. They moved them to Babylon, which was a very impressive city. So they're not coming to some shantytown. This is a magnificent structure. Second, they changed their language. They would now have to speak Aramaic and probably Akkadian, which was the scholar's language. Third, they changed their reading material. They would have to read the literature of Babylon, pagan myths, divination texts, astrological texts, commentaries on dreams and visions. The Old Testament law would have been outlawed. They could not have that. They were to be programmed according to the theology of the Babylonians. The law of God was unacceptable. Fourth, they gave them new names. Just gave them a completely new identity. Daniel now comes Belteshazzar. Fifth, they changed their food, diet, and home traditions. Now, it might sound like a small thing, but have you ever traveled for a couple weeks, like to Asia or Africa or different places? Have you ever done that? What's one of the things you miss? Your food. In fact, you start thinking about, oh, I can't wait to get home that big plate of spaghetti. I'm going to go have a wonderful Colorado steak. Mm, Boy. Just change their diet. Change their customs. Six. They gave them a three-year intensive training. They're serious about this. They're going after these young men. They want to make them Babylonians and Chaldeans, and they want them to serve their gods. And remember, all the other religions were polytheistic and serve, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. And then seventh, they gave them a special teacher to see that they were reprogrammed according to their beliefs and their religion. Now, there's a marvelous secret here. And it's for us men, not just for children. 
And the secret is this. Daniel and his three friends in verse 8 say this. They purposed in their hearts. They, they, they resolved not to be defiled by this educational system. You know, this is really courageous. They're courageous young men because they could easily just have been killed like nothing. This was an absolute monarch. He could just get rid of you in a second. No, he's not going to answer to the Congress or Senate. And they are not intimidated by these powerful people. They're not frightened by them. They're resolved and willing to face death. Now, the king of Babylon could not change Daniel's theology. And that's because we know Daniel's theology from chapter 4, verse 25. Listen to it. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Kingdoms of men. The Most High rules. Now, this is a good thing to know at the time of the election. We're all upset. Wondering, you know, maybe God's in heaven going from foot to foot with sweaty palms, wondering and worried about it all. He's not worried. He's not worried. Because the Most High God, He actually rules over the kingdoms of men. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar turns out to be God's tool for chastening the people of God. And God will chasten him and his kingdom. Now, I bring this story up because I, I believe that we are facing our Babylon today. We're in Babylon. We're in the devil's territory. And there are people who are trying to brainwash us, and they are trying to brainwash your children. This is not an exaggeration. There are enormous pressures on us today to conform to this world. The seculars have powerful tools for brainwashing, reprogramming the mind, making us conform to the godless secularism. Babylon is quite alive. And I want to talk tomorrow more about the tools of modern secular man to brainwash us so that we understand what's happening to us, what's happening to our children. And sometimes we're totally naive or out of it. In fact, that's what he says to the Corinthians because they got brainwashed. And he says to them, wake up, come out of your drunken stupor. Look at verse 34. It's a wake-up call. And the world today has tools they never had before. We may be the most manipulated people in, in history. There's the powerful tool of TV. There are movies that just enchant us. There's the powerful internet today, which your children live on day and night. There's the advertising industry, which basically tells us how to dress and how to do everything. There's our universities and colleges. There's the music we listen to. And there's the lure of materialism and money. There are people that are doing everything possible to change our thinking. And by the way, they don't like your church. And they don't like what you believe. They laugh at the resurrection of the dead. It's just madness to them. And so, how are we going to face these powerful forces to change us, influence us, and really, in the end, take us from the Lord? Or we are nice Christian people. We come to church. You even come to a conference like this. But really, you're more comfortable in the world. 
your real values, your real thinking is modern humanistic secularism. A couple in our church who are very good Christian parents, and uh, they're sitting at the dinner table, and they're discussing things, and there were certain things in the newspaper about gay sex marriage and all of the, the laws in the Supreme Court, and they're just talking about this, and all of a sudden, the junior high girl just tears into mom and dad. You're just bigots. You're Neanderthals. Uh, you're in the dark ages. There's nothing wrong, and, and the parents are sitting there totally blown away. Their, their daughter, a nice girl, goes to church, totally secularized. Her whole thinking process is exactly what the world wants it to be. She's been brainwashed. She drank the Kool-Aid. And dad and mom didn't even know it. And many of our parents don't even know what's happening to their children. And that's why when many young people go off to college, they don't come back. There's plenty of statistics to show that. Now, men... This is wonderful that we have a men's conference because in this attack from our society today, men are the target. And you may not even know that. Our society today, unlike almost any time in human history, is gender confused. You can define your own gender and you can change. You can be a man in the morning and a woman in the evening. You, this is not a joke. This is true. 75 different kinds of gender identifications. And they want us to believe this. And they want to feminize you. They want to treat you like your Archie Bunker or Al Bundy, a male moron, unless you change. If there's something this world hates, it's this. Are you ready for it? Are you ready, Rich? Yes, sir. The world hates Ephesians 5, 23 and 25. It hates that passage. Even our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ say, that was accommodation to the society. That's not for today. Male headship, the man, the head of the woman. Tell your friends at work you believe that. If you're in the university, tell your teacher or the fellow students, yeah, the man is the head of the woman. Hopefully, you won't be killed. They'll be nice to you and just get you some good medication and move you out because you're undoubtedly from a different age. The Christian home, marriage, is an interesting. These are all the great attacks that we are facing, facing today. We need to purpose in our heart, just like Daniel, that we're going to be the men God wants us to be. And we're going to accept the Scripture's definition of a man. Uh, back in 1962, I, I remember this very vividly, and uh, there was one of the, uh, the most popular books was Hugh Hefner's The Playboy Philosophy. He had already had Playboy magazine, which in the day was really racy. This was big-time stuff. If you were teenagers in those days and you could get a Playboy magazine, you'd have a lot of friends. Today, it's like children's play. And then he wrote a book. Now, listen to the title of this book. You ready? The Playboy Philosophy. Now, just listen. The Playboy. Do you think God wants Playboys? No, he's not interested in Playboys. Incidentally, isn't it interesting 
that that philosophy is so destructive to women. They don't like our philosophy, but theirs is worse. Women come the simple object of our sexual lust. Women are just as abused today, just covered over in a different way. The playboy philosophy. Brothers, God isn't interested in the playboy philosophy. He wants you to be like his son. He wants you to be the head of the home, but it's a different kind of head. We have to be careful when we say this because people think we're talking about the bully. Uh, we're talking about Archie Bunker. Or we're talking about the guy who's the boss, guy who sits down with the newspaper and bosses his wife around, treats her like a wet dishwag. Let's turn to Christ-like headship. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, many of our dear brothers and sisters in our seminaries today are telling us this is cultural. It's cultural. That's this cultural teaching. It's accommodating to the times. But look at the next words. Even as. Do you see those little words? Is it up there on the screen? Boy, this is, we, we have the technology. Even as Christ is the head of the church. Can I ask you a question? Is Christ the head of the church? No question about it. Is that cultural? Is that for the times? No. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its Savior. Verse 24. Now, as Christ submits to, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. Oh, that's a bad word today, the S word. You might just want to say S, submit. It's, it's been removed from the vocabulary in everything to their husband. Now, again, it's not culture. As the church submits to Christ, does the church submit to Christ? Well, then the same way. Analogy, analogy. So also the wife to the husband. Now, verse 25. Husbands. Now, I just have to stop. Stop one second. We're reading this 2,000 years later in a society that uh, has had a lot of Christian training, or at least nominal Christian training. In the day, they talk about cultural accommodation. In the day Paul wrote this, this was crazy. This was madness. Husbands, love your wives. It's a wife's job to love the husband. The husband's job is to rule. No, husbands, love your wife. Now get this, it gets harder. It's actually impossible. This is impossible. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when I talk about male headship and you talk about male headship, you've got to be careful because people think you're talking about a bully, the boss. We are talking headship. Every man has headship, but it's Christ-like. Now, to be a Christ-like head to my wife and to be the head of my home for me is impossible. I cannot do it. You know why? Because men are selfish. You are looking at a selfish male. You are selfish males. We are all selfish males, so we're all the same. Now, go back to verse 18. Go back to verse 18. This is the only way I can do this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the only way I can love my wife in a selfless, self-sacrificing way. That's the standard. It's a new standard. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. 
And so I actually give myself to my wife. And as the verses that follow show, for her sanctification, for her knowledge, for her growth in the Lord, for her perfection, I work. I want her to use all her gifts. I want her to have the knowledge of God and to know her Bible and to be a woman of prayer, and I am to help her lead her in that course. Guys, that's our, that's our standard. And even we Christian men don't seem to get it. We still think it's this selfish male domination or control of the woman. It is a Christ-like head. So you have been called by God to head your families. You are heads. God has ordained it, and he's going to call you into account. As in our last message, he's going to call you into account for your responsibility to your home. But it's Christ-like. Don't, don't get confused here. Don't kick your wife. Don't throw things at her and think, I'm the boss. Because Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, he won't even listen to your prayers. If you abuse your wife, he will not listen to your prayers. So this is the standard set before us men. This is what we must purpose in our heart. We are not playboys. We're not Peter Pans who won't grow up. We are to be like the Son of God. That's why I believe, um, Brother um, Rich, I believe in men's ministry. Here's why. Because Satan knows if he can knock out the male, he takes the family down and he'll get rid of the next generation. He knows that. So you men are a special target. Your wives are often very spiritual women. They read the Bible. They go to Bible studies, get the kids to church, do the praying, and you yawn and go to bed. So Satan knows if he can disarm the head or make the head unchristlike, he's won a great victory that might last a couple generations. And he knows that men have a responsibility in the household of God. Not only are you to be a head in your individual households, you are to be responsible for this church. A grave error is to think that a group of Paid staff is the head of this church. Well, they have responsibilities to lead, but you have responsibilities when you come here. You must take ownership of this church. You must take ownership. You are to guard the flock. You are to make sure that sound doctrine is taught. You are to be a model of what God wants. Now, there's a second attack. There is an attack upon males, and they want to reprogram us. And you may not know this. I read a lot of literature. But many of our major seminaries, many of our major Bible commentators, people who I've loved and read for 40 years, they have become egalitarian and feminists. They want to feminize you, and they want you to get rid of this doctrine. I can't believe what I've lived to see among Bible commentators and Bible professors and seminary professors who once I admired, and they've just dropped to their knees before the idol of egalitarianism. I was on the plane coming back from somewhere, and I read a new book. Um, uh, it's a Baptist book uh, written to Baptist leaders, and I, I was almost sick, and I was I wasn't a plane, I'd thrown the book, uh, saying that even the United Nations Health Organization 
has more understanding of human rights for women than the church does. I didn't know the United Nations opinion meant anything in the household of God. What about God's opinion? What about God's rights in God's house? And in God's house, he says, the man is the head of the home, a Christ-like home. In fact, just stop here one second. If I were to say to you, what is a Christian home to be characterized, I'd want to know, would you be able to immediately answer me? So I won't embarrass me. I'll give you the answer. If I were to say, what is a Christian home to be characterized by, I could answer you right out of Ephesians 5. Which, by the way, when arguing with people about male and female roles, that's the key passage to go to. A Christian home is characterized by love initiated by the head. Not the woman. We we expect that. The women, they do all the lovey-dovey stuff. We go out, work hard play football. In fact, there's a book called The Impotent Church, and the thesis of this book is football's for men, church is for women. That's the thesis of the book. The Christian home is to be marked by love initiated by the man. Whew. That's different. Let me repeat it again, just in case it hurts The Christian home is to be marked by love initiated by the man. And what kind of love? Christ-like love. What's Christ-like love? John 13, 34, and 35. Selfless, self-sacrificing love of Christ. Everything revolves around Christ. So my home should take on Christ. And Christ should shine through me. And what should shine through me is a great care of love for my wife and my children. I give myself for them. You know why? Because they grow up real quick. When they're a little tiny, this seems like forever. But all of a sudden, they're up and they're out of the home. Just like that. And you just now produced another generation. And you produce another generation for God because you have purposed in your heart to be Christ-like. Or you produce a generation who's been brainwashed by the world. And basically, they're Christian only in some kind of nominal name. Now, our children. I want to just make a comment of our children before I end here. Uh, We need to teach our children to be Daniels. First of all, we need to be Daniels. We need to be people who resolve in our heart, we're following the Lord. We're going to be a Christ-like head. God's Word. God's Word is the only book in the entire universe that explains marriage. Did you know that? Tell me another book that actually gives you a definition for marriage. And the very first marriage, and who was there? You know who was there? God was there. Jesus said, incidentally, Jesus and Paul both take us back to Genesis 2.24, before the fall, when they talk about marriage. And you know what Jesus said? What God has joined together, wait, hold it. I thought two people enter into a contract, break the contract when you want. No, what God has joined together, in other words, God's the witness of your marriage. Let no man pull asunder. So, A a marriage, a Christian marriage, is actually a covenant in which God is the witness. We always say in a marriage, who the witness is. Well, the witness is God. And he he will hold even the unsaved. He holds everyone responsible for that covenant relationship. That's how serious it is in the Bible. And that's before the fall. They always like to tell you about the fall ruined marriage. Well, yes, fall did ruin marriage. But marriage was before the fall. And the man was the head before the fall. 
The Bible is the only book that gives you a definitive definition of marriage, where marriage came from, the purpose of marriage, and who will hold you accountable for your marriage. What God has joined together. But that's why the world doesn't like the Bible. Now, your children. Uh, There was a uh, song written by uh, Philip Bliss, and he was actually one of uh, Moody's, D.L. Moody's associate musicians. And he wrote this book, uh, this song, excuse me, over 100 years ago. And we sing it to children, and, and I'm afraid we don't even sing it to children anymore, but we can sing it to men. The story of Daniel is a story to men, not just to children. Teach it to your children. These were young men, courageous young men who decided we're going to follow the Lord. Too bad about Babylon. We're prepared to die. We've resolved that we're not going to be defiled by the king. Listen to the words. I believe they're on the screen here. By the way, how many know dare to be a Daniel? Raise your right paw. Okay. Very dramatic, wasn't it? (laughs) Okay, here we go. Standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hail to Daniel's band. Now, dare to be a Daniel. Don't you know that? Dare to stand alone. I wish I could sing. I'd sing it for you. All right, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. You can download this right on your computer and teach it to your children. Sing it to yourself too. Notice second verse. Hold the gospel banner high. On to victory grand. Satan and his host defy and shout for Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. Download the song. Teach it to... I want your parents to download that song, okay? You go home. They, they don't, you come report to me. I'll give you my card. Call me. Okay. It's a wonderful tune. Now, I'm not going to tell you exactly my age, but it's shocking. I still sing this song. I still sing this song. And it comes to my mind. Because it's a great song. Dare to be a Daniel. You're going to need that in Babylon. We're in Babylon. And the emperor is called Satan. He's got a lot of good teachers, by the way. They're very good teachers. We need to pray for our children. We need to teach our uh, children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. uh, Here's what I want to emphasize tomorrow. And the instruction of the Lord. Learn to be a teaching father, not an angry father. Dads, your children need you. They need you. You need to let them know you're a Daniel. You're dare to be a Daniel. You're dare to stand alone. You're dare to have a purpose strong. You're dare to make it known. And then you need to teach them this wonderful story when they go to school. Now, there's a new modern song, hip song, and it goes, Why are you scared to be different? You know that? You probably know that, right? Why are you scared to be different? How many know that? Raise your hand. Where do you guys? Do any of you people go out in the world? Stay in the church here soon? Okay. There, uh, why are you scared to be different? It's a hip song. And with my, I'm with my grandchildren, and I terrorize them sometimes. Uh, they're in the car, and I turn around. Why are you scared to be different? They go, ooh, ooh, Grandpa, what did we do wrong? So, no, when you go to school, dare to be Daniel. Because if you're not, you're going to be taken away. The, the secular tsunami is just going to take you away. I'll say goodbye to you right now. It's going to run right over you, and you're going to be washed away, unless you dare to be a Daniel. 
unless you resolve, you resolve, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be intimidated by the world's philosophy. Is that mine? Alex, that's me. Okay. All this goes on tape, and people don't know what's going on. Don't let Babylon defile you. Resolve in your heart. You're going to be different. You're going to take your stand for the word of God. See, that's what Daniel and his men did. They had been trained by somebody, probably their parents, who may very well have been killed in, uh, in, in the, the attack upon Jerusalem when Israel was carried away into captivity. Someone taught them the Old Testament. They didn't come there and decide this the last second. They were teenagers who knew their Old Testament. They knew kosher food, and they knew the will of God, and they knew the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of, this, of men. They knew this. But they didn't just know it. They were prepared to die for it, to stand for it, to dare to be a Daniel. So that's going to be our challenge this week as we look at the powerful influences of Babylon upon us today to reprogram us and to get us to think like the world because that's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. They should have believed in the resurrection. They did believe in it, but now they questioned it and wondered how could this be. Bad influence. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we thank you for these magnificent Bible stories. And they're not just for little kids. They're for us as we face powerful forces today that want to reprogram our brains and uh, change us and make us like them to listen to lies and false teaching and destructive ways. Help us to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We know that that is the best thing to do, and it's always profitable. Speak to us this weekend, I pray, in the name of our Lord. Amen.